Okay, welcome back. I want to thank Steve Wilhelm for covering last Monday when I was at Cloud Mountain. I've heard it was a, a good talk. And we'll continue with that theme of exploring Sila. So Sila is also translated as ethics or integrity or morality. And it fits into this three-month theme because it's part of these three pillars of uh, generosity, of wisdom, and sila. And when you kind of look at them as, as a whole, you can see how much they interrelate and really support each other. If we're trying to grow our wisdom, which we so much emphasize in, our, in this tradition, and yet we don't attend to our morality or our ethics, we're going to have a lot of internal noise, a lot of internal chatter as we're kind of looking over our shoulders and, and feeling like we have to protect ourselves. We have to kind of justify our, our unethical actions. And if we don't tend to generosity, we won't move toward that sense of interconnection, that sense of, of really actually acting from a place of, of relationship, of awareness that we are not an isolated person, that we're actually connected to everyone else. So these two of, of generosity and of ethics allow us to then settle our minds, open our hearts, and then from there, wisdom becomes, starts to grow from that, starts to flourish from that. And that's, I think, one of the reasons the Buddha would use those three as a foundation. His first teach about ethics, teach about generosity, and then start to bring these wisdom practices in. Now, ethics is one of those tricky words in, in our culture. I remember, I think I heard that uh, the Dalai Lama was once asked why he didn't often publicly teach around his wisdom teachings, which he has, has a lot. He would tend to teach around kindness. And he said that kindness is actually safer, right? It's easier to kind of get um, dogmatic and get really caught in the, the ideas of what we think is wise or philosophy. But we focus on kindness, which is another way of talking about morality or ethics, is, is safer. It allows us actually to grow in interconnection with each other. I also remember Christina Feldman once said that early on, you know, when she first, she first started teaching, I think some what, 30, 40 years ago, they did a retreat on ethics and not many people signed up for it. <laughs> so there's also that piece. It's like, oh, wow. And not, not the most engaging topic. And yet it's, it can be very engaging. I mean, engage, the precepts, we can look at those. We can look at the precepts in specifically tonight as a part of ethics but the precepts, if we just hold them as a sense of something we chant or we kind of do by rote, they're not very alive. But if we actually take each of those precepts and practice with them, actually see how do those little edges show up in my life, then it becomes a very engaging practice. We can actually see everything from each of these, these precepts. And I can see how that really deepens my practice and is a profound way to bring our practice into our daily life. So just acknowledging and noticing your, your initial reaction to the word ethics or toward morality and seeing if we can reframe that and work with it a little differently. Now these precepts, there's, they're often different translations or way that they're, they're framed and I'll share a couple of them tonight. 
But one of the, the classic ones is basically, I undertake the precept or undertake the training to refrain from, right? And that's the beginning of each of these. And it's different than saying, you know, shalt not or don't ever, or the idea of sin and all that doesn't really come in to these, at least the way we're holding it here at Sims. But undertaking the, the training, the precept to refrain from. So understanding that it is a process. It can be a really alive process, not like this kind of contracted dead thing, this rule that I always have to follow, but how do I actually go into my internal understanding of that? How do I start to shift from an external authority to my own internal understanding, my own internal wisdom around these. So the five precepts are, I undertake the training, or I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech or false speech, and I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to heedlessness. Right? So those are the five precepts that we, we take as, as a group annually in the first um, Monday of the year that we practice, this coming Monday the 8th, I believe it is. So we'll be doing that, Tori and myself, We'll be leading that, and we'll all take those precepts and have some protection cords. And we, when we go on retreats, we often take that as we start the retreat. And many people do that as a daily practice, a way to really refresh that, refresh that intention. One of the things I love about these precepts, at least the way that I, I like to explore them, is that it's not so much this external authority, like the Buddha saying, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. It's about you understanding for yourself the effects of that. Understanding for yourself, for your own internal authority, your own internal wisdom of why do we follow these precepts? Why, do we, why does it make more sense to do that versus not? And so the precepts, at some point, they actually feel, it almost feels like it's, it's really hard to to break the precepts. You know, and many of us have gotten to that point already, that you start to say something that's untrue and you just feel that contraction in your heart, feel that, that tension in your body, feel that dissonance between, you, between what you know is true and what your words are saying. Right? And so as our practice matures and deepens, it becomes much harder to do the precept because we can just we can see the denial of that. The same thing with harm, you know, like to kill another creature, we can feel the, the dissonance of that, to steal something, to take that which is not freely given. You know, sexual misconduct, those, that's a little bit more complex, there's lots of kind of nuances, but there's also these clear lines that when we relate from a, a place of, of disconnection or a place of isolation with our sexuality, when we relate to someone from that perspective, it doesn't feel good. It, doesn't, it feels like it's contracted. It feels like it's separate. And then intoxication. Drunk, drink, um, drinks and drugs and substances which lead to carelessness. This is an interesting one in this day and age when we have legalized marijuana and 
kind of a relaxing some of those, you know, like the, was it the 80s that there was the dare, like, you know, the, the war against drugs and all that, kind of relaxing some of those. And, you know, how do we relate to those kind of substances? What does it mean to lose that heedlessness? When do we, when do we lose this quality of being heedful, I should say, when we start to lose that capacity of clarity? You know, that's, that's an interesting line. And, you know, times when we might enter, partake, and when are those times? So these five precepts, we can really use them as a training, not only to kind of help us kind of reel in our, our, our actions and our activity, that just that commitment to reel things in starts to cool things down. We start to quiet down inside. Right? Versus if I'm always telling lies, stealing, I get churned up. So things start to quiet down. We can also start to use them in the more subtle ways that we feel ourselves starting to push against one of the precepts. We start to sense that. Okay, I'm starting to want to tell a lie, or maybe someone won't mind if I take that thing, right? Maybe someone won't mind if I use my sexuality in this, this, this way that's maybe not quite as clear or as kind. That becomes a, really a trigger or an invitation to, to look more closely. Right? So I think that's so important because we can shame ourselves into following them. Like I'm a bad person if I'm breaking these precepts. There might be some use if that helps us not break them, but it also adds a lot of tension. We're really shaming ourselves. We tend to be under pressure, more likely kind of just to go, just to blow them off at some point. But if instead we start to feel that tendency or that impulse, then we can just pause with that and notice where is that impulse coming from? What's the expression of maybe greed in this moment or hatred? Where's the sense of hurt that's coming from that wanting to, to lash out? Where's that sense of, of, of shame that I'm trying to cover up through a lie? Where's that sense of scarcity, of lack, of insufficiency that I'm trying to fill up by taking something which is not mine? There's the sense of escape, of trying to avoid what is painful by going into intoxication. So starting to just recognize that. That's one of the, the gifts of meditation, is it allows us to slow down our normal reactivity, our normal response. Because usually we're so quickly responding from those, the stimulus, from our impulses, from our, what our mind says. And we start to pause through meditation, just learning to sit quietly. I mean, how many times have you been meditating, even this last session, and you felt like doing something else other than meditating? You know, getting up, checking the refrigerator, checking the phone, whatever it might be that seems so pulling, so alluring, and yet you kept practicing. You come back, you came back. All the times that you released a thought and came back. That starts to train us in these, these other, especially around these ethical things. We can feel the impulse to do something, and we can pause with it. And we pause, hopefully, with compassion, being willing to really feel the pain that's underneath that, the tenderness, the hurt, the inadequacy, and addressing that directly, meeting that directly, instead of all these substitutes we usually try to do.
It's almost like the precepts when we start to come against it, it's almost like a, a little alarm or a alert that comes up that tells us, oh, are you getting near a little red zone? Maybe pay more attention, slow down, pay it open to what's here. Now, these precepts, we usually think of them in terms of how I act externally, how I act in relationship to others. That's absolutely true. And I like to include ourselves, our own internal relationship to our minds, to our bodies. You know, how often do we say things to ourselves in our internal dialogue that's perhaps not completely true? You know, those statements of, of definition. I'm always this kind of a person. I'm so this way. Is that really true? Is there a quality of inner harm that's coming from that? Inner um, harshness that's coming from that? So bringing the precepts also internally that you hold yourself equally. For those of us who have practiced metta meditation, you're familiar with the way that we go through different categories of beings. You know, we offer metta to uh, to the benefactor, to the friend, to the neutral person, even the difficult person, and also ourselves. And it's been said that if we practice really deeply, at some point we can't really distinguish those. This is actually a classic test that Sharon Salzberg had to go through at one point after intensive metta. And they asked, the teacher asked her, okay, you're walking down the forest and you have your best friend on your right, your Hate, most hated enemy in, enemy in your left, and yourself. And a bandit comes out and says, okay, I'm going to kill one of you, but you get to decide who it's going to be. Right? So in that moment, you know, we, from our normal perspective, we think, okay, I want to protect my friend, or I want to pro- get rid of my enemy, or sacrifice myself. But it, when she was asked that question, she couldn't answer it, because each of those beings was held equally including yourself. And so the same thing with the precepts, is that we hold ourselves in an equal way to that. We hold our own well-being, our own um, sense of, of integrity with this. And sometimes the precepts, kind of especially the little expressions of, of breaking them, when we're, are more likely when we're overworked, when we're stressed, when we're cranky, I know in my own mind, when I'm just kind of a little beat down and, and overwhelmed, it's easy to be a little more harsh in my speech, a little shorter in the way I interact with people. Right? So noticing that, okay, maybe that's a time of bringing compassion to myself, bringing a sense of clarity to myself. Maybe I need to rest more. Maybe I need to take more, more time to rejuvenate. So these precepts, these five precepts, as we take them as a community, as a sangha, as we take them on retreats, they start to create this almost a quality of a container that we can relax into. We can kind of relax that, okay, everyone around us is following these precepts. There's ways we can, we can kind of let go and, and let go of that normal guardedness. I remember in my first retreats or so, I was a little surprised by hearing the precepts and realizing I could not worry. I didn't have to worry about someone taking my wallet or taking my possessions. You know, just, okay, this is all held together. There's a sense of communal safety, of integrity. 
sometimes on retreats when I, I guide a group into taking these precepts, I often like to just state them in English and have a pause as we kind of align ourselves behind them. And sometimes you can almost feel like there's something about the container or the room starting to become more um, contained or more um, supported. There's a way it kind of strengthens the group cohesiveness with each of those precepts. So these precepts are often laid out in this sense of refraining from destroying creatures, from refraining from taking that which is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from incorrect speech or false speech, and refraining from intoxicating drinks and drugs, which lead to heedlessness. So that kind of laying out in the way like, it's pretty clear, because we kind of know, am I lying or not? Am I stealing or not? Am I harming and killing or not? So there's kind of a clarity with that. And there's also some really beautiful ways that the kind of positive attributes of each of these these, uh, precepts can be articulated and presented. And sometimes that works better for our minds to realize that the precepts, what's the opposite of stealing is generosity. You know, what's the opposite of harming is kindness. And each of these have a positive way of expressing that. And I'm going to use uh, Thich Nhat Hans and Plum Villages, you know, that, that Sangha's expression of these, because, you know, he particularly liked to, to bring this, this very positive quality into to these precepts. And that's actually part of the homework, is to take a look at the full, the full list, a little um, link there in the online people, and then on the in person you can see it in the the list there so the first one is instead of saying they're refraining from killing it's actually having a reverence for life having a reverence for life and this one i'm going to just read in full because it's fairly short but it captures some really beautiful aspects aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life i'm committing to cultivating the insight of interbeing and compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I'm determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to support any act of killing in the world, in my thinking or in my way of life. Seeing that harmful actions arise from anger, fear, greed, and intolerance, which in turn come from dualistic and discriminative thinking, I will cultivate openness, non-discrimination, and non-attachment to views in order to transform violence, uh, fanaticism, and dogmatism in myself and in the world. Right? So Thich Nhat Hanh puts, he makes it very comprehensive. He puts this whole kind of package of ways to look at this one precept beyond just the killing of, of, um, of beings. I've been reflecting lately, just as I do this one precept, you know, I wonder if sometimes people wonder, what's the Buddhist stance on pro-life or pro-choice, right? Because so reading this, you know, you can talk about the death penalty too. You would wonder, I would wonder <laughs> if I heard this, where I am. So I can't speak for all of Buddhism. You know, I can't even speak for all of Sims, but I can speak for myself as a teacher. I certainly feel it's, it's really important for women to have the choice, 
to have the choice of how they, their bodies, what happens with their bodies. So that's, that's my stance with that. And I would encourage each one of us to find our own way of relating to it. And there's plenty of instances of, of harm that we can look at, just the harmful, like of insects. You know, how often do we quickly slap down the, the mosquito without even acknowledging that we're taking a life? So bringing awareness to that, really engaging with these precepts in your daily life, whether you take kind of the positive framing that Thich Nhat Hanh does, or just the regular way of exploring them. But find ways that they, they come up. This particular one I, I kind of got a little focused on as a, in my early days as a practitioner. And we try to, to really bring consciousness to killing things. I remember going on a retreat and deciding not to swat at the mosquitoes and just feeling you know, the, all the reactivity and the strong pull that you know, a lifetime of being conditioned by mosquitoes whining and then biting me to, okay, I'm going to just hold that, hold my own reactivity, protect these other creatures. And it was really hard to overcome that, to meet that. Luckily, I had the container and the structure of the retreat to, to practice with it. So I'd be walking with a cloud of mosquitoes following me, and then I would turn around, and they followed me back. And it was interesting that working with it, at some point, that started to fall away. The, the, the strong connection of, of visceral fear and uh, anger around the sound to just being a sound. Another kind of foolhardy example of me playing with this. <laughs> My daughter was a toddler. Uh, in preschool, we would have kids come over to our house. And I would worry if, if we had a big uh, wasp nest in our backyard. I was worried about them being stung and maybe someone being having an anaphylactic shock and all that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take that, that. I'm going to discourage the, the wasps there. But I'm going to try not to kill them. Right? So what I did is I knocked the nest down and I ran away. So I just harmed a few of them. But they built the nest back in the same spot. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, well, that's not enough. I need to, to move them. So I, I put a, this sounds really, I won't, don't recommend this at all. <laughs> but I put a garbage can underneath it and knocked it down and then covered it up really quickly. Somehow I did not get stung. And I took it to a, a park in a remote part and, and and I catch a release and ran away without getting stung. But they liked that spot, and they built it back there. And so finally I got the can of Raid and, and sprayed it. But it was really a very different experience of just feeling the sorrow of killing these creatures, feeling the sadness of that, you know, and letting that really register. So sometimes we do have to kill things. We have rats or pests, but just bring that heart to it. Bring that, that remorse along with the action, being aware of that. Now the next precept of stealing, of not taking that, taking that which is not freely given, Thich Nhat Hanh expresses it this way as true happiness. And there's a longer paragraph I'm not going to read, but the first part of it is, Aware of the suffering caused by ex exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I'm committed to practicing generosity in my thinking, speaking, and acting. Right? So 
this one, all these really, but we can take not only the restraint or the renunciation of the action, we can take the opposite of engaging in the action of generosity, right? The action of kindness, of non-harm. I'm determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should be belong to others. And I will share my time, energy, and material resources with those in, who are in need. Right? So this is a lovely one to play with and practice with. You know, what does it really mean to take something that's not freely offered? And there's lots of kind of shading and gray areas that we play with. And you can usually tell because your mind's kind of a little chattery. It's like trying to justify that. Go to one of the grocery stores and they have the little samples. How many of us have kind of swung by a couple of times? When the sample is probably, try one and if you like it, buy it, kind of a thing. And we kind of add that little bit. So bring that consciousness to that. The next one is around the, the sexual misconduct. And Tikhan Han says it this way, he calls it true love. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I'm committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. Knowing that sexual desire is not love and finding sexual activity motivated by craving always harms myself as well as, as, well as others, I'm determined not to engage in sexual relationships without mutual consent, true love, and a deep long-term commitment. Right? So that's, that's one expression of this. So again, in, in sexuality, there's lots of ways that we are sexual as human beings. So the, the last part about the long-term commitment, you know, I think you can still have um, sex, which is part of this, still holding the precept, but maybe not having the long-term commitment. I mean, that's, people do lots of different things, lots of ways that they engage around this. But I think it is important to see the whole person to also monitor the sense of craving and wanting. And there's nothing wrong with having that wanting, but see the whole person. And always have that quality of consent. You know, where is there really consent? And consent's one of those easy, those words that's easy to think we know about it, but there's, uh, there's actually some important aspects around that. You know, consent is sometimes, sometimes it's hard for someone to say no to an advance and to recognize when that dynamic might be there, especially if there's like a power differential, a power dynamic that can happen. It'd be hard for someone who's in a lesser powerful place to say no to someone who's more powerful. And sometimes it's hard to say no. So to really, to take that in, to really listen to that. And if there's consent, then enjoy that. Celebrate in that energy. Celebrate in that expression of being human. The next one is, is the falsehood. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, loving speech and deep listening. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I'm committed to cultivating loving speech and compassionate listening in order to reduce suffering and to promote reconciliation and peace in myself and among other people. He goes on and on there. He's, there's a lot of good things with that. I'm committed to speaking truthfully, using words that inspire confidence, joy, and hope. So from a kind of the 
the most narrow definition of this this precept is really around speaking falsehoods, speaking which is what is true. He brings some other elements, you know, the, the careful listening, the deep listening, which I think are beautiful elements to expand that. There's also elements of the beneficialness of speech. You know, is this a beneficial thing to say? Is the timing right? And the sense of being something being truthful, again, this precept is um, not speaking of falsehood, right? It's not necessarily speaking, always speaking what's true, right? Because sometimes that's not really beneficial. It's not really helpful. And sometimes what's really true it's not always uh, commonly agreed upon. You know, we can just take a look at the, the greater political world, and it's like what is true is people have completely different understandings of that. But we could be, I think we do know when we're saying something which is untrue. We're saying something that's false. So starting to feel that. And I'd love to feel that quality of, of the inner monitoring of my own body, the senses that are coming up. And you can feel when there's that, that rub, when there's that dissonance that starts to come up. A related aspect around why speech is around gossip. I remember having a friend who got in a bike accident. And the in- head injury he received from that started to change his personality. And he was a very sweet kind of guy, and he got much more kind of surly and foul-mouthed and, and violent from that. And I heard people telling me about that. And, you know, it was interesting hearing that. And then when I actually saw him again, to talk to him, I noticed how my mind kept kind of putting these overlays on him from what I heard about him. And it was a little harder to see through that, to connect who this actual person was right in front of me. All the power of being present, of noticing, of being alive to your own inner experience. And the final precept of, of uh, intoxication and avoiding that which leads to heedlessness. Thich Nhat Hanh, in his version of this, he really expands it to mindful consumption, mindful eating of, of things, and how we consume all things in our life. So he called it nourishment and healing. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I'm committed to cultivating good health, both physically and mentally, for myself, my family, and my society, by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. Right. So this one, as I read it, is like, wow, he's asking a lot here to be mindful of everything and all these different aspects. So if they were drawn to that, please go into that. And the baseline is just that intoxication, that heedlessness. Right. So some teachers and some traditions feel like a little bit of heedlessness is, is intolerable, so you know, don't have any alcohol, no drugs. I myself kind of hold it more on that, that quality of, of being heedless. When you start to lose that capacity, that's when there's probably a time to slow down or at least have the structures around you that you're not going to be able to harm someone, that you turn your keys in at New Year's Eve if you're, if you're going to drink or if you're going to be stoned or whatever it is, to take care of yourself and others and to really think that through. And, you know, there's the states of mind and all that. That's, that's kind of an exploration that if you're drawn to, you know, that's that you're, you can. You can explore that. So these five precepts, 
there's kind of the clear line of it, of like, basically, don't do this. And there's these positive expressions of it. So I would encourage you to take a look at Thich Nhat Hanh's list. Now, the last thing I want to share is something the Buddha said around the precepts. And he actually called them these faultless gifts, these gifts without fault. That there's these five gifts, five great gifts, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unaltered, unaltered from the beginning, unadulterated, sorry, unadulterated from the beginning. They're not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, are unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins, which are these five, right? So if you look at the suttas, there's often these phrases that keep being repeated again and again. And then there's the, the other part that's kind of the new part for each of the suttas or each of the descriptions, kind of like a chorus and a verse. And remember, this was all a oral tradition that people would chant these. And you can imagine chanting these, the parts that were repeated would really start to sink in. They're kind of be you start to breathe them, you start to really resonate with them. And then the, the new part, you would kind of catch your ear, you really notice those. I think sometimes the way that we save space on the, the paper by kind of abbreviating, sometimes does a disservice for that. But I will do that too. So each of these precepts, he's talking about these being these five gifts. There's a case where a, a disciple of the noble ones, a practitioner, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from taking life. In doing so, they give freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. Freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, they gain a share in limitless limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift. So the Buddha is saying that when we practice the precepts, we're giving really a boundless gift to all, to all beings beyond what we can comprehend. And I think that's it's a, such an important element because sometimes we don't notice the effects of our good intentions. We don't notice the effects of us acting in a kind way, in a place of integrity. But those echo out. They echo out through everyone who directly experiences that integrity. People who don't or maybe don't quite directly experience it, but they still resonate with it. They still connect with it. I think there was some study that in cities where people would start to meditate, a certain number of people meditating, they actually see a decrease in violence, in crime. And so the Buddha goes on for each of these precepts. Again, each of those big phrases, he talks about these gifts abandoning that which is not given. The disciple, the noble ones, abstains from the taking that which is not given. Abandoning illicit sex, 
the discipline of the noble ones abstains from illicit sex. Furthermore, abandoning lying, the disciple of the noble ones abstains from lying. Abandoning the use of intoxicants, the disciple abstains from taking intoxication. So in doing so, they give freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless, limitless numbers of beings. And we share in that. We share in that, you know, the benefit of that, the growth of that. And these are great gifts. So the precepts, sometimes we think of them as a very kind of fundamental or even rudimentary practice, that we just kind of adopt those. But I think we really owe it to ourselves, for our own hearts, our own bodies, our own minds, to really bring that into the forefront. Actually, start to look through that lens. Daily life is a great opportunity of that. How do we actually live from a place that's based in non-harm, that's based in kindness, that's based in a sense of, of interconnection? And start to notice how people around you start to really benefit from that. They start to relax around you. Those of you, you know, you know someone who is has integrity. You, you kind of trust them. You relax around them a little bit more. You don't worry about yourself in the same way as someone who is a little bit, as, as one movie character talked about, having a, a flexible morality. You know, it's really that sense of, of morality or ethics or just this training or this commitment to kindness, to non-harm, to generosity. It starts to really become a bedrock of who you are, of what you are as a, as a practitioner and more importantly as a person. So I encourage us to, to play with these, to open to those, and bring curiosity with them. Interest, investigation, noticing when you get caught in one of the, the precepts to realize the reason I'm pushing, I guess that there's some way that it starts to benefit me. I may not fully acknowledge that or take that in, but there's a sense of, of benefit. I'm benefiting myself, maybe not the most direct way. Right? Like I'm stealing something because I'm feeling lack of. I'm lying because I want to protect myself. That's kind of the benefit that we're trying to do. Right? So then you step back and realize, is that the best way to do that? Is there a more direct way? You start to find things settle. You feel more and more centered and grounded and connected in this process. Okay, let's just sit, quick, uh, sit quietly for a couple moments and then we'll talk about the homework for this week and then open to see any questions and, and sharing you might have. All right, thank you for your kind attention. So the homework, hopefully you saw it online and picked up a copy here in the room. So simply reflecting on these five precepts, just to bring those to mind, the different elements of those. And some of those you're going to find a little harder to follow, harder to stay with those precepts. Other ones perhaps are easier. 
So just bring some interest to what about which ones are hard to follow. You find a little harder to follow in all situations. Bring curiosity to that process and start to sense it to that mixed motivation. Okay, we might feel like I want to be the, the good person to do this, but maybe I don't want to be good right now, right? Maybe I want to, you know, take care of this, this, this thing or try to do something in myself. Notice the internal experience of, of you getting around those edges of the precepts. Do you feel more settled? Do you feel more open? Or do you feel this kind of dissonance in your system? And then ones which are easier to follow. What's the inner and outer effects of that? Actually start to notice it. What's it like internally when you choose to speak what's true or not to, not to lie, when you choose to be generous? And then reflect on those positive expressions of those precepts as expressed by Thich Nhat Hanh. This is another way of exploring. You may not agree with everything that he's presenting or exploring, but you know, it's a way of, of kind of a model of how can we flush out the, the positive expression of these precepts for ourselves. So we have a chance for any questions or sharing you like to do. If you're here in the room, if you could grab the mic, that helps those online to hear you. And those online, you can just raise your, your virtual, virtual hand. Okay, Iris, go ahead. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for this talk. Um, the um, the precept of uh, intoxicants. Um, I, I, you know, I think a lot more broadly about intoxicants um, other than just alcohol and and drugs. Um, you know. Um, You know, look, looking at the news or watching shows or buying stuff, anything to distract myself from being present, mm-hmm. I regard as an intoxicant. And so, you know, that's that's a place that um, that I struggle with in terms of um, looking at my cell phone, checking my email, um, looking at the news on the computer. And and you know I I I, I see it I I feel the the pull um, the craving for something and um, I I get little hits of whatever that something is you know intermittent reinforcement and so you know it keeps me coming back for more and I also am very aware of how it doesn't satisfy whatever it is I'm I'm looking for. Um, but you know that that's a place that um, that I need to be very very mindful of. Great, thank you, Iris. Yeah, the description that Thich Nhat Han does for that one, he he actually includes you know all these things of media and consumption and and ways. Yeah, I think it's under that one. Yeah, it is. So yeah, that sense of 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 distraction, or sometimes it's helpful to to notice. Okay, am I more going towards something, or more going away from something else, or maybe both, right? 
Because sometimes we're feeling, you know, bored, or we're feeling something, our mind is, is distressed, or we're feeling this sense of, we just things aren't going very well. And, and we have so many access to them, so many things that help us forget that, to help us kind of get that dopamine hit, you know, and, and cell phones and, and, and the whole, all these things, there's all these, they're trying to figure out how do you get to get us to, to keep pushing that button and keep engaging and, and swiping and, and looking. So it's, it's not just, um, not just you. I mean, it's really engineered to do that. So sometimes just pausing and it's also okay to take, you know, distractions to kind of check out too. You know, I think it's important to, to, to notice, you know, why am I doing it? It's really the sense of intentionality around that that's important. Because I, I used to think that, okay, these spiritual teachers, you know, once they get to a certain level, they're not going to do any of this stuff, right? And I was, I was, um, I don't know if he would mind me saying this or not, but let's say a very senior teacher, not not someone here at Sims, but someone, you know, in the bigger community, in my teacher training, he, he was asking us, um, do you guys know any good mystery novels? I want to, I'm looking for new ones to read. And I was like, well, wow, that's interesting that, you know, I wouldn't think that this person would even have any desire to do that. You know, other teachers, you know, get engaged with, with different types of, of entertainment and enjoyment around that. So a lot of it is just bringing the, the sense of what's, Buddha would often talk about, you know, what's the drawback, what's the danger, and what's the benefit of things. And a lot of things have a mixture. They have both of those elements. And sometimes we might choose, okay, I really need to just unwind and, and disconnect and, and get lost in this, this sitcom or this, this, uh, this Netflix series or whatever it might be. And you also might notice, well, I do that every night, or I, I spend, you know, lots and lots of hours. Because isn't something, isn't it something crazy that the average person spends like a month or something on, on watching TV or something a year? It's something like really shocking. It's like, or maybe it's like, it's a lot of, it's something much more than you would think. All right? So that's life that you're not there for, right? And so bringing consciousness to it, you know, just what I would recommend is a simple practice that when you start to be drawn to do something, get on the phone, watch TV, whatever it is, just take a couple moments to, to connect with that, connect with that impulse, right? So that's slowing down the impulse to act to actually see what's driving that impulse. And sometimes it's, yeah, it makes sense to go ahead and follow that. Sometimes it makes more sense to do something different, like maybe taking a walk or calling up a friend or something that's more connected or something that's going to nourish your heart. So kind of bringing more awareness to it. Thank you. What else is out there in the room in person or online? Yes, do you mind coming up? So I also, is this working? Okay. Yep. Uh, I also have a yellow jacket issue. Um, I have yellow jackets coming into my house somehow because it's cold outside and warm inside and they're like gathering along my windowsill, which is like mostly okay, but they're like, they're not doing very well. It's not their time anymore and they're dying. But before they die, they go through this like 
many hours of like twitching. And I have a debate in my household about whether it is a, a good thing to kill these yellow jackets or to just let them twitch until they're done twitching and then clean up the carcasses, <laughs> which I think maybe you kind of answered um, with your story of, of your own wasp nest experience. Um, but I was just curious if you had any thoughts for our debate on uh, whether we leave these yellow jackets alone or not. Sure, like the euthanasia, you know, is that... <laughs> of invaders that we hate. Say that again? Of invaders that we admittedly of, hate. Of invaders <laughs> that we hate, yes. Well, it actually ties in with, with um, Aris's question. It's really around that intention, right? So if my intention has that sense of ill will, of hatred, of, of um, pushing against, that has a certain um, way it conditions us. It shapes our minds. So we could talk about it from a perspective of, of karma. We could talk about a perspective of... So when I say karma, sometimes that's a heavy word, but really it's just when we do something volitionally, it carries a certain karmic weight, right? So not necessarily that means that you're going to be reborn as a yellow jacket next time. <laughs> it's, not, it's not so clear like that. But it does have a sense that it tends to incline us to being that way in the future. You know, so there's that. It reinforces that neuro, from a neurological, neurological standpoint. It kind of reinforces that neural circuit, if you will. So I think of something, especially if, I mean, because you didn't bring them in, right? They came in their own choice. They kind of have a, their own kind of choices they're making there. And I would tend to let them just kind of die based on what you're saying here. Just because because you are you don't like them and you're averse to them. It's hard not to kill them from a, that adverse, that sense of being adverse, if that makes sense. You can work with that. You can reflect on that and maybe it can become a place of compassion you know, a sense of, of kindness, and then that's where euthanasia can come in, and that you're, okay, this this being a suffering, and I'm going to, you know, let them, help them along their way, especially if they're asking for that. But with, you know, animals, pets, and like with these, you know, these uh, yellow jackets, they can't really communicate in that same way. But just, yeah, notice if there's that sense of, of aversion, hatred, ill will, that's probably something to, to, to really be uh, aware of. You bet. And I tend to not like, you know, giving specific advice. I much rather say, look for yourself and see. Because, you know, I don't, I just don't think it's, a, it's too much power in this role to say, you know, everyone should always wear green socks on Mondays. You know, it's like, I, I'm just using that as an example, as a silly example. I think it's much better just be conscious, be aware of what's arising and how you meet that. Yes, you mind coming up? Um, so I hesitate to bring this up because it can be controversial. Um, but on the subject of ethics and, um, I guess, karma, what is your stance on um, eating or supporting um, the the death of sentient beings? Like eating meat? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so the question is around my stance around um, being a vegetarian or a vegan and in terms of around this topic of, of ethics mm -hmm. and killing. Because um, I know that. Beings. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. No, um, sure. I know that you're not. Um, in real time, killing 
an animal like you would maybe a, a you know allow a wasp to survive um so i just wonder like that line of paying to consume something that at another point in time someone mm-hmm. you know so i i just want to i want to know what your stance on that is and my personal stance or the stance as a teacher or dharmic or all of those um i mean yeah I, whatever you have to offer is sure i'm all yours yeah i think it's a, it's a really important question oops sorry <laughs> um zoom did something weird there for a second so around you know, choosing to be a vegetarian or to eat meat and, and how do you how do you hold that it is a really important question because from the from one perspective we can look at okay eating meat causes harm in lots of levels right it causes harm toward toward that being certainly that's been killed there's the harm that goes to the environment for how we how that causes a bigger carbon footprint there's you know all the other harm that we can we can kind of track out we can talk about harm in our bodies and we can also look at the in our terms of our own body because we can we can get into a lot of um arguments about you know being vegetarian or vegan eating meat you know what's the the better way to do that i remember a, a friend of mine who was a, a buddhist monk for a while he would try to be vegetarian as long as he could but then his body would start to break down and they would have some meat to kind of replenish things so i think that's also part of the factor too is how does meat you know nourish us and take care of us so i tend to leave that question really up up to the people you know to be aware of that aware that you know when you choose to eat meat you're all you are something has died for that you know there's a especially the way we tend to have it very kind of separate the actual act of killing something from the actual consumption does seem very separate, very different. I myself, I eat meat sometimes, you know, and I try to, to limit that. I try to be aware of that. And, you know, I think it's, it's probably more ethical to not eat meat. But the, ca- you know, the caveat is, you know, how, how do you take care of your, your health and your body? You have to really take care of that with the right balancing. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, any other hard or easy questions? <laughs> yes, Deb. This uh comment has to do with the uh, false speech or unwise speech okay. uh, precept. Uh, so I was in Sangha uh, some years ago with a yogi, and he made a comment that I thought was very um, salient about this. He said, you know, when I, um, when I would go to parties, I would be like the funniest guy in the room because I would be telling stories and... Hmm being kind of glib and sort of, um, you know, entertaining, Mm -hmm. which sometimes has an edge of sarcasm about it or snarkiness. Yes. You know, how clever can I be? Yes. Type of thing. And it's entertaining. And we pay entertainers to do that. And we watch 
People on television do this endlessly. So-and-so is very funny. He said, then when I started to be a Buddhist and take the precepts and about unwise speech or false speech, he said, I was really dull then at parties. I wasn't very funny at all. And I think he kind of recognized that uh, there was a da- there was kind of a downside, quote-unquote, to it. He became kind of dull. Hmm. He... Um, he couldn't uh, hold court the way that he used to be able mm. to hold court. Mm. And um, I'm putting words in his mouth to say that he felt it as a loss, because I really don't know if he felt it as a loss, but he recognized that there was a big change in his former self, kind of the life of the party, uh, entertaining, and he no longer could be entertaining in that same way. Mm. And so I thought, oh, well, there's that's something to be approached then, right? You know, can you can you still be liked and hold the precepts? <laughs> can you still be? That's kind of a big jump there. From... I know, is that a joke? <laughs> can you still be? Oh yeah, you know that Deb. She is really. Oh, we always want her at our parties. Well, I don't know. She's kind of. She slinks into the background. She doesn't have any drinks anymore. She's dull. She's, you know, is there a social price to pay for holding the precepts? Okay, social price to pay for following the precepts. Okay. Can everyone hear that question? No? Yes? Okay, good. Sure. So the question is around kind of the social price of the precepts, an example of, of a... Sangha member who used to be kind of the life of the party and started to then practice more and then found himself becoming more dull and less entertaining, less engaging. And is that kind of, should we expect that if we take these precepts? It's going to be a really small precept ceremony. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I would say to that is I would imagine that his you know, he's not here, so we can just speculate as much as we want. <laughs> Perceptually, though, being still being ethical about it. Uh, but the, the sense of, of humor, sometimes it does come at the expense of, of the truth, of gossip, of making fun of people. That's, some, that's one way that perhaps he was being the life of the party. It's like, oh, you know, you should talk to so-and-so. You should see they did this silly thing. And we all kind of laugh at that. But you start to realize, okay, I'm actually talking ill of someone. I'm, I'm saying something that's not true. And that becomes, it beca- yeah, it becomes harder and harder to do that because you're knowing the cost of that internally. But I think you can also be very humorous without having to break the precepts. So I wouldn't be surprised if he, over, over time, kind of transformed the way he was able to be entertaining to still be aligned with the precepts. I will, that's what I would hope for. It's like, it's the same thing with wise speech, is that sometimes we get a little uptight for, for a while, right? We're like, we can't really say anything because, you know, we, we want to make sure. We, maybe we study nonviolent communication or something else that we kind of get, okay, I have to make sure I'm saying everything in the right way. We get really kind of stilted and inhibited the way we say it. Hopefully that's just kind of an initial training that at some point something 
shifts in us that we're able to be spontaneous again. And yet there's kind of this ethical bedrock that's still there. Like for myself, like I'm not rehearsing what I'm saying. I'm just kind of saying it. But I'm very aware of my own internal experience. And if I said something, like I was, I was doing a small group the other day with someone, and I said, I teased someone about something, and I noticed that I felt that little contraction. Okay, I said something that wasn't quite kind or ethical or might be misinterpreted or might have caused harm. And I've learned, especially as a teacher, when I feel that, it's much better to address it right then because otherwise I'm going to get a note and I'm going to have to address it later. You know, just to, to own that. Okay, I said something. I just want to acknowledge that that maybe wasn't as clear as I meant. You know, I wasn't clear in my intention. So we're able to kind of track the intentionality and the motivation and the internal alignment, clarity or dissonance and unclarity in real time as we're speaking. And so I think, you know, humor, entertaining, being engaging, you know, it doesn't have to be sacrificed at all as long as it, you know, isn't causing harm. And unfortunately, that is a big way that we, we do cause harm is through humor. You know, we, we make fun of other people, different groups of people, and it can be really funny. And if you're that group of person, you're not going to feel very good about it. You know, so how do you hold that? How do you meet that? Does that, that answer your question, Deb? So follow-up is you just feel like you have to be so careful of what you say. Well, I would encourage, you know, to kind of relax a little bit. Can I just kind of learn, learn, make, be willing to make some mistakes around it and just learn what it feels like when you're talking from a clear way, a heartfelt way, and when it feels like you're not. And it's different than trying to think it through. Am I thinking I'm saying it the right way versus do I feel that? And if you make a mistake, just say, oh, I think I said, I put my foot in my mouth, or I said something that might have been off-putting. You repair it, you acknowledge it, repair it right then and there, or as soon as you recognize it. Sometimes you might realize, oh, yeah, that thing I said, I'm going to just follow up. I'm going to send a quick email, check to see if that was received okay. And sometimes people are like, yeah, I thought that was funny. I didn't even notice it. And some people are like, yeah, that, I did feel that one. Does that make sense? So I think it is good to kind of loosen things up. I think that's one of the, every kind of form has its benefits and its limitations. And sometimes this kind of silent sitting form has a limitation that we get a little stilted. We get a little bit, we're not so flexible and moving in our life. All right, anyone else like to ask or share anything? Yeah, do you mind coming up? Um, I have a question. Um, so I, for some context, I grew up in a household with like lots of guilt and judgment and shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when I initially like hear things like, for example, the five precepts or other ethical like conversations, that's like the primary, primary feel, feeling that comes up. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering like, where do you start when your initial reaction is? primarily like lots of shame. Yeah, so the, the question is around, can, can I have a conditioning of, of growing up in a family, there's lots of guilt and shame imposed on you when you hear the first 
when you first hear the precepts or the ethical training, it's easy for that to get triggered. Okay, okay. Here's another thing I have to be ashamed of, or ethical, you know, embarrassed about, or guarded around. Another quick story: um, Joseph Goldstein once was pra- practicing, just feeling kind of heavy in his mind having some struggles, and his teacher said, I want you to go into your room and reflect on your ethical conduct. Okay? So if you come up with a background, like maybe like you and him had a similar background, he reflected on all the stuff he's done poorly. But the teacher really wanted him to think about all the good he was doing <laughs> to brighten his mind. Right? And so what I would, what I would do, because you probably... You're probably more ethical than the average person. You're probably, because of that conditioning, you're probably, okay, I'm not going to, you know, or maybe you rebel. Who knows what you do? (laughs) That's the thing thing about shame is like, A, you don't want to talk about it. And then B, also sometimes leads to like periods of time where you just go against it all. That's right. Yeah, and that's... That's often like, that's I started off the talk kind of trying to acknowledge that, that we, we bring our baggage to that. And sometimes it is like we want to rebel against it. Sometimes we want to collapse and shame around it. So I would kind of take that, that sense of shame, make that kind of a forefront of practice until that really starts to loosen up. Because shame and guilt are powerful ways that we define ourselves. They're going to really reinforce that sense of separation, that sense of self. It's, it's a painful sense of self, but it's, it's really kind of, it's strong. It's like really got cross beams and interconnections. It's really in there. And so using that, okay, that's something I want to really open to and learn to see through, to kind of free up that past conditioning so the present moment can be much more open, right? So that, the Voices of shame and guilt will still arise in the belief that you are someone who should be shameful. or But that eventually you can see that just is it's just a belief that doesn't really define you. So then when you hear the ethics come up, the sense of the ethics kind of lay all the cards out on the table so you're not trying to kind of keep things behind. You know, it's like, okay, here's, here's the shame around it. Here's the rebellion against it. Here's the... Well, that's probably a good idea, actually. That, you know, see the whole element in there and just see which one's kind of pulling at any time. So you become more aware of the whole internal uh, relationship and process around it. And in terms of the kind of the hidden part, maybe next week, um, if you feel like coming, come in and talk about some things. Talk about, like, here's a precept I have struggled with. And when I say this, I feel shame and guilt around it. And I'm still going to say it. And you can see everyone around you, hopefully if you pick the right group, <laughs> is going to be accepting and allowing, right? It's like, oh, okay. You know, they, and that starts to, to undercut that, that messaging, right? And then the rebellion, they're kind of pushing against the precepts, like, okay, I just, I don't want to, you know, that's... It's hard. Sometimes when we're in the middle of it, it's hard to, to recognize this. But it's actually an important developmental piece is to push against things. We try to claim autonomy and individualate. And, you know, we typically try to do that with our parents, and hopefully it's a healthy process. But sometimes the dynamic makes it more, you know, more amped up, let's say. So also notice that, you know. That's why I think it's helpful to think of the precepts as being not an external thing, but an internal. 
And the tricky thing is the internalization has shame and guilt waiting to, to open to that. So open to that, be conscious of that, open, work with it in different ways. Does that help at all? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I know that took some care, some courage. And I think you're, you know, many of us have that, have that feeling, you know, that sense of something is, is wrong with us or that guilt or that shame. Okay, Carlos. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was actually thinking about, uh, yeah, I think my question is pretty related to the last one in that, I mean, I'm somebody who didn't grow up with religion and came to, like, I'm, I'm, I was definitely more interested in meditation and mindfulness than in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So, Part of me, I feel like when, when it comes to the ethics, there is also that moment of like, uh, oh, this is not, this is not the part that I was in for. Right. Um, but for me, what really helps is to just think of it in terms of like, is, is this a mental state or an action that is causing suffering to myself or to others? That's right. And, if so, then why would I do it? So it's, yeah, I guess it, it becomes much less about some rule that, like, is this a sin or am I going to heaven or whatever? It's just like, is this, I don't know, it, it becomes much more about just like, does this make sense? Like, why, why would I keep doing this if I know that it makes me feel bad or if I know that I'm hurting somebody else? Um, and in that way, I feel like for me, I mean, and I, I guess this is the question, like, because to me, then it becomes like actually pretty unimportant, like, no offense, like, what would you think? Or like, what, what would Buddhism think of, of this? Or like, what is Buddhism stance on abortion or anything like that? Like, and I guess I don't know, like, is that, can I keep going that way? Can I keep going where it, I'm, I'm taking all those decisions very personally and based on whether or not I feel like it is causing suffering to me or to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carlos, I think that's, that's a great way to, to practice with it. Yeah, to kind of, because there is so much, you know, baggage and sinning and all the stuff that we come into around ethics, but it's just to kind of boil it down, am I causing suffering for myself and others? And if it is, why would I do that? And that becomes this, you know, that, that becomes really the internal um, understanding, the internal feedback, and that becomes really much more developed and much more able to, able to carry that through. If you have some external thing, you know, if my parents are going to yell at me if I do this, if my parents aren't around, I'm going to do it, right? You know, I have that kind of, that rebellion, because, but when it's internalized, when it's really coming from my own understanding, my own wisdom, then that's, that's a much more solid basis. And I think that's ideally any kind of, of really informed working around ethics kind of brings that, you know, to the forefront, is really becoming intimate with your own understanding, your own experience. 
The only um, small caveat is that our experience, because it's ours, is also shaped by our past conditioning. It's shaped by our experiences, what we've you know, come across and we haven't come across. So by that way, it's, it's limited. It's not universal. So I would also kind of just kind of keep an open mind to when, when teachers or different traditions talk about ethics or things like that, just to kind of take it in a little bit and see, okay, how does that relate to my own understanding of it? And if you can kind of find, okay, I, I can see that that causes suffering. I don't want it. That doesn't make sense to do it. But if there's a part of you like, oh, I don't want it, that's, I'm going to push that away. Sometimes that's coming from discernment and clarity. Sometimes it's coming from delusion and blindness. So it's kind of, you know, be willing to kind of hold that a little bit because all of us, we can't see ourselves completely. We can't see our actions in a full way because... Because, yeah, we have some, some delusion, some ignorance. That's, that's part of being human and practicing, being a practitioner. That's why having people that can kind of tell you, give you feedback, or call you on your stuff, or well, have you thought about this stuff? That can be so helpful. And then be willing to kind of work with it, open to it, see what's there. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing that, Carlos. Okay, so we've come to uh, 9 o'clock. Thank you for your great questions and engagement around it. Yeah, there's, there's lots of kind of difficult pieces to this, things to explore. And there's also parts which we, we start to become more and more clear around. So next week, we'll have a, a small or shorter recap of this talk. I might recap it, summarize it. It might go a little different direction depending on how I feel. And as I do my own reflection on this, and then we'll have a chance for some small group dialogue around it. It can be very powerful to talk about your exploration around ethics with others who, who are like-minded. So I encourage you to come. And then we'll be taking the next two weeks after that off because the 25th is uh, um, Christmas and then New Year's Day is on uh, the 1st. Then we'll be back here on the 8th. Okay, so thank you all, and have a, a wonderful evening. And if you have a chance, you can help us roll up some cables and put some stuff away. All right, thank you.